This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. Welcome back to another edition of Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. Rip Simonic joined me by phone while on one of his visits to Saratoga this past summer. You heard a couple of his big score stories earlier this season, which were hilarious. I met Rip through good friend and season one guest Bill Walsh. Bill and Rip, and Rip's brother Paul, grew up, as you will soon hear, in the Old First Ward in Buffalo. Rip is the founder, CEO, and chairman of the board of the Old First Ward stable. He's also a member of three different sports halls of fame the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame, the Buffalo Sabres Hall of Fame, and the Hockey Hall of Fame. Rip is passionate about what he does, passionate about horse racing, and passionate about Buffalo. That's my kind of guy. I think you'll enjoy our discussion about racing and his life in sports. You are, um, are you the managing partner of Old First Ward Stable? Do I have that right? Uh, what's the, I what's am. your official title in there? My official title is sole owner. Sole owner of Old, Old First Ward Stable. All right. All right. Yes. And when, when did you form it, uh, Rip? Um, actually, ironic thing is uh, that you're talking to me. My mare, I purchased, uh, I think, maybe 12 years ago at Tampa. Her name was Simply Fancy. And she's had six foals. Unfortunately, last year she was pregnant with a big brown baby, and she died from cancer. Oh. Her, uh, she had a unfortunate situation where we lost the baby and we lost her. So all of her six babies have won, every one of them. Wow. My first, my first horse, Simply Fancy. I claimed him or her at Tampa Bay Downs for $16,000. And she wow. produced five, so far, five in the money stake horses. Wow. And the last one that just won, I hope someday she can win a stake race, Maze Loves Brownies. She Maze won on Brownies. Tuesday. At, uh, at Big Balloons, I believe, too, correct? Yes, $40, $40 the horse paid. Wow. She's uh, we had a, we had to try to get her mean. She was like her mother. She was a really, she's a really, really nice filly. She's so, but... We got it together, and, and uh, she she got the job done. So we were very happy about that. So, what caused you to pick out Simply Fancy down at Tampa? Did, what, what was it that you liked? I'm always curious about that type of thing. Okay, a good friend of mine who is now the racing secretary at Delaware Park. His name is Tom Creel. Okay, he's the one that got me into looking at horses. I always liked Tampa. Tampa doesn't like me. I've only won like four races there for <laughs> ten years. <laughs> But uh, he, he's the one that we had an eye on this mare, and she's 100% sound. And I claimed her for 16000 and she raced for, I think I claimed her as a three-year-old, 
I raced her till she was six. Okay. And she never took a bad step on the racetrack. She was a hundred percent sound. And I said from day one, I mean, right now I name all my horses after my wife. Her uh, nickname was Maisie, M-A-I-Z-E. Mm-hmm. And I, and I said, as soon as, uh, as soon as the, uh, the horse gets injured, I will not run the horses. Okay. I'm not a, I'm not a guy that's going to run cripples and I, I don't believe in that. I, I just think it's cruel and humane. I think, uh, a lot of California people are finding that out now. Mm. People don't want to run crippled horses. Right. I mean, right. they're I mean they're good to people, and people should be good to them. Yeah, no, no, that's a that's a really good point about California too, because I think that a lot of what happened in California had to do with the pressure that was put on some of the owners and trainers to run horses that were not sound. And yep. You know, then because they wanted full fields, right? And then you look and you see exactly. what happened. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you also? Um, now, you you bred to simply fancy, uh, obviously. Do you also claim horses as well, or is it, are you strictly running horses that you bred? Um, I'm not a big claiming person. Okay. I was. I'm in the process of. Um, I bought four horses at Keeneland this summer. Oh wow! Okay. Um, I had some decent luck at Ocala mm-hmm. for a lot of years, and I said, you know what? I see all these things advertised on TV that Keeneland sells a lot of winning horses and a lot of stake horses. So I went in with, you know, I took, sent my trainer there and she, uh, she bought me, uh, four nice horses. I have six babies on the farm. Wow. And, wow. uh, my, my lady that takes care of the horses is so proud of these horses. Her name is Sue Carlson. Okay. She is wonderful. Um, we've had, you know, we've had a bunch of, uh, Nice horses from her. Mm-hmm. They've all been, she's, she's very similar to me. If they have problems and we, we don't do anything to abuse them. I mean, we had, we had one horse or two horses this year that came out of the mare. One had a, uh, her ankle was, uh, twisted back and we had to make a special shoe for the horse. And so I named it after her. Sue Shoe. So Sue the Shoe. horse is really doing good. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we had another one that was uh, out of uh, one of the mares I raced. I try to keep my mares that I race to breed them. Mm-hmm. And this one had a really, really crooked leg. And some of the people from Darby Dan came to that farm were looking for mares. And they wanted to see because I've been fairly minimal successful with breeding my horses. And uh, we were really scared. We're going to send the horse to Cornell. And the lady from Darby Dan said, "Oh, we get rid horse. We get twenty of those a year." She goes, "Just get a just get a brace. Put a brace on it." And oh my. the horse is the tallest horse in the barn and straight as an arrow. Her legs are wow. So wow. But uh, I mean, I, I, I've been in it for twenty some years. I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> that's that. Well, that's that's the way you want to be, though, right? I mean, you want to keep learning. Clearly, Rip is the type of owner that brings honor to our game and honors our athletes. Rip's stories about the days before simulcasting and TVG brought out some great stories. How did you, how did you get into racing in the first place, Rip? Uh, I, was, uh, I, I worked at the racetrack with Billy Walsh and my brother Paul, who passed away two years ago. So we were, we were driving partners. We went to every racetrack, everywhere. I mean, before simulcast was alive. Right, Billy was right. the, the best and fastest driver. If you want to make the daily double, <laughs> Bill Walsh was behind the wheel. And um, one great. of the oddities, yep, one of the oddities, 
My brother never drove. He passed away when he was 72 years old. Mm-hmm. He never drove in his life. Wow. And we, we had a thing going that we would see every racetrack in the country. We missed one track before he passed away. It was Via Park. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. In New Mexico. So yeah. I, had a, I had a little bit of a break at the All-Star break this year. So I got in a plane, flew there, got some uh, dirt from the track and some stones from oh. the paddock, and, and I got him in my house. Oh, that's great. Wow. Rip knows what it takes to win on the track and in professional sports, even if he does manage to bring up a particularly painful winning team. You know, Rip, you mentioned it's interesting a couple of times, um, you know, wanting to make sure that you only run horses sound and take good care of them, which is really admirable. And I know you have a extensive background in professional sports, which I do, do want to talk about. But, um, you know, and I'm sure part of your caring for horses is just the way you are, right? Uh, but how much of it comes from your athletic background as well, working with professional athletes and knowing what they do, you know, every day, playing with injuries? Well, I have to possibly compare those two. I've always compared, I tell the players, I said, I have racehorses because they're the second best athletes in the world. (laughs) I said, you guys are the highest paid, so you're supposed to be the best. But I can very easily turn it around in the past 10 years with the Buffalo Sabres. (laughs) We haven't, definitely haven't been the best. But we're trying, and you know, and as in racing, as in as in hockey, as in sports, you got to be positive. If you don't, yep. if you're not positive, you won't win. I mean, there's. I mean, look at the St. Louis Blues. We played them. In Let's January. not talk about the St. Louis Blues as a Boston guy. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> I know. Go ahead. I know. <laughs> yep. Well, all my horse racing guys are from Boston, so. Okay. <laughs> so I had I had to get to. I mean, I was squeezing for for the guys that we we sent like Ryan O'Reilly and those guys to the St. Louis, but they're a bunch of nice guys and they believed in themselves. They were in last place in the league. Last place in January when we played them yeah, after the yeah, All-Star break. Yeah. Last place. I mean, the Bruins are outstanding organization. Everybody would like to copy the Bruins because, number one, their fans are fantastic. Um, they they put it together and, you know, there's no saying. So, once a Bruin, always a Bruin and stuff like that. I mean, we use the same, but Sometimes it doesn't do us any good. Rip got his start in sports with the Sabres back in 1970, but began his sports career even earlier than that. Like a lot of so-called overnight success people, Rip's dedication early, very early in his life, led to that opportunity. I think, if I did my research correctly, Rip, you are the last original Sabres employee from the 1970 Sabres when they first got started, right? Yes, yes. I'm the old last man standing. All right. <laughs> um, I started with the in American Hockey League when I was uh, 12 years old um, with the Buffalo Bison. Okay. Who were affiliates of the Bruins, the Rangers, uh, I mean, uh, different teams. But uh, that's how I got a love for the game. I mean, I love hockey and, and I love horse racing. They just, fortunately for me, most of the cities they have a hockey team, they have a racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> It's something to do on the off days, right? Uh, there you go. <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes they can't find me on the road. I'm not in a bar, but I'm at the, I'm at the daily double window. <laughs> now, I think if I did my research correctly again, I think you got your start with the Sabers because you, I think, worked at the rink where the owners' children skated. Is that correct? 
Yes, this, uh, the Knox family. Okay. The Knox family. Um, I only lived uh, uh, not even a 16th pole from the uh, from the arena, the old <laughs> right. auditorium. Okay. Yep. So I used to, I used to walk to the rink. Um, you know, in those days, the players are shocked when I tell them they. Some of them are interested, and other other don't care. They just care about themselves. But other than that, that's another story. But uh, I used to go there in the morning. I get up at five thirty. Uh, my mother, sister, and family brother owned a restaurant. Okay. Um, a, what they call Greasy Spoons, or they opened at five in the morning. Yep. So I'd walk my mom and you know my sister down to our restaurant. Uh, get everything started up, get the coffee going, get the grill going, and then I would walk to the arena. And then I would go in there and finish up the day's work. In ways large and small, the sporting world has obviously changed quite a bit from the days when Rip first got started. The players had two sets of laundry every other day. It was washed. Today, the players have three sets per day. Washed oh, every day. Wow. So wow. It, was a, it was a different lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, those American League guys, when I was a kid, they could go anywhere with anybody. They were making $16,000. That's how many you were making. Mm. My, I mean, I know guys that worked in the green elevators and elevators made more money than some of these hockey players. Wow. You've already got some sense from Rip of how different life was back in those days. Getting up before the crack of dawn to walk his family to their restaurant and getting things going there before heading off to his job at the rink. Clearly, naming his stable after his old neighborhood was Rip's own way of paying tribute to the community environment, the hard work ethic of the old neighborhood, and the hardworking people around whom he grew up. That's what the community was. All yeah. All hard work and blue collar people that worked at the Buffalo or the steel plant in the in the grain mills and you know, I mean we had but we got to be a bit of an icon place. I mean, Bill and my brother Paul were, were best friends and he would bring his family down there but I mean, into the restaurant with his kids, and, and we'd have the mayor in there, we'd have the fire chief in there, we'd have the chief of police in there, we'd have the sheriff's department in there, the politicians in there. So a lot was done in that little restaurant called Mary's. I was going to say, so, I was going to ask you the name. All right, Mary's. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. How was the beef on wax sandwich at Mary's? Uh, our our famous thing there yep. was not beef on wax. Our famous thing was the breakfast, home fries. My brother... My brother was the king of home fries. <laughs> oh, I wish I had known him then. I love home there fries. <laughs> no, so th- so that was the old first ward, or old first ward, right? Where Mary's was, and where yeah. you got to know Bill, and you and you, you and your family grew up. And it was a uh... yes. It's it's very revived now. Very very revived. A lot of brew pubs. Okay. Um, the, I mean, it's coming back. I mean, like every rundown neighborhood in every city in the United States. But we're coming back. We have good people that live there. That's great. Sister and family great. still lives there. Yep. Um, you know, uh, we just remodeled the church and remodeled the uh, the center, and, and uh, they have their Irish parade. So, I mean, we're the oldest Irish parade probably, probably in, I don't know, the state of New York, maybe the country. But we have a, we have our regular old First Ward parade with the Irishmen, and mm-hmm. we have the, uh, obviously they have the uh, the generic one down Delaware Avenue in Buffalo. Sure, but, yeah. Uh, Ours, ours are where the real Irishmen are. <laughs> That's <So>. great. <laughs> Rip's tribute to his old neighborhood and to his beloved late wife, Marianne, even includes the silks worn by the joggies on his horses. And and just going back to racing for a minute, your silks for the old first ward are the classic Sabre uniform logos, correct? 
Uh, yes, I was given permission, and you mentioned the Knox family. Yep. That was the reason they have those colors, blue and gold, was their pole. They was their pole colors. They were big polo players. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Seymour, Seymour Knox, when he was alive, I told him, someday, if I ever make a lot of money, instead of $100 a week, I may now, uh, <laughs> when I buy a horse, <laughs> can, I, can I use those colors? And he says, here's a written permission from me no and way. the family. Wow. Yeah, you can use those colors as your colors in horse racing. Wow. So wow. I still have that. I still have that just in case anybody That's challenges fantastic. me. Or, That's fantastic. But uh, uh, I try to do things the right way. And I figured, you know, if I use the Sabre logo, and in the middle of the logo is 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 my lucky charm, my wife's initials, M-A-S, oh, right nice. in the middle. Nice. So yep. she's always with me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. By the way, that's a very clever way to ask for a raise, too, by the way, if I ever make more money. That's very good. <laughs> you, got a letter, did, you got a letter, but did you get the raise is the question. <laughs> Took me a while like when I got the job full time. <laughs> Rip's tenure with the Buffalo Sabres, now spanning half a century, began in 1970, which happened to be a very big sports year in Buffalo. When the when the Sabres got started, Rip, that was a I, I was looking up. That was a big year in Buffalo, right? The Bills joined the NFL that year after you know right. the American Football League. The Buffalo Braves, I think, got started that year as well, right? Yes, they were. That was one of my highlights of of, of all my sports venues. When the Boston Bruins, are your Bruins? Yeah, here we Boston go. Boston Bruins and the Sabres were in the playoffs, and the the Buffalo Braves were playing the Celtics. The Braves, the Buffalo Braves, were a really they good were a good team. team. They were a good team. They were and, yes, and they had they had a double header, which I don't know if they, I mean, they haven't done that in years and years Mm-mm. in sports. But we had we had seventeen thousand for the Braves and the Celtics, and we had sixteen thousand for the Sabers because you could get a thousand extra seats in for okay. the basketball. For basketball, sure, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you don't see the so old double was, headers anymore. No, but go so ahead. It was yeah. a one o'clock. One o'clock basketball game and a seven thirty a playoff game. It was two playoff games. It was, it was amazing. I mean, they have all these venues and they pop them all up, but that was electric. I mean, something you can never forget. It was it was outstanding. Oh yeah, and and that was at the old Memorial Auditorium, right? So uh, yeah. you yeah. know, it wasn't like they had luxurious locker rooms then either, or even multiple locker rooms, right? So did the did the Sabers and the Braves share the same locker room? Um. Yes, they did. They had a, they had adjoining doors. Okay, and uh, you know all the guys knew each other, and, and you know they they practiced. Um, we practiced at Nichols Prep School, and the Braves practiced at Buff State. Okay, so we only played our games there. Not a lot of practices there, but uh, all the guys knew each other. They all you know pumped for each other, and they were good. I mean, we had a Bob McAdoo, Randy Smith. Yeah, and the Sabers were. Sabres were outstanding. We had obviously the French Connection and right and uh, you know Jim Schoenfeld and you know Phil Housley. <laughs> Phil Housley who just moved on to Phoenix now. So Jim Schoenfeld, he was the famous uh, "Go eat a donut" comment, right? Wasn't he to the referee there? Wasn't that Jim Schoenfeld? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> well, his his most his most famous thing is putting Bobby Orr through the through the board. Now wait a second. That's okay. <laughs> now that that's heresy right there. Rip's employment with the Sabres began working under one of the legendary names in professional hockey. Now, you worked for a legend of not just uh, Buffalo sports, but really hockey and sports in general. You worked for Punch Imlac, correct? 
Yes, he was the guy that actually hired me. Okay, all right. So, what was it like working I mean, for a guy like that? Because he was he was a legend, obviously. Uh, you know. Yes, he was. He came. He came. He came from Toronto. I mean, they had won the cup in '67. The only thing he said when he had his first staff meeting was, "Our main objective is to kick the butts of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't <laughs> care if we win five games a year, but we have to beat the Leafs." Okay. So his, I think it's in the records. If you go back, I think we beat the Leafs nine to two or something. The first game in Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh wow! Wow. So <laughs> it I was mean, personal. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what Punch did was he brought a bunch of elderly players in that were in the last legs of their career, but I'd say seven of them had won Stanley Cup rings. So uh, okay, that's the that's the kind of attitude they want to bring to Buffalo. We want we want winners. Rip was there when the Sabres experienced some success early in their franchise history and was there for one of the more memorable games in hockey history. While similar conditions prevailed when the Sabres faced the Dallas Stars in the Stanley Cup Finals in 1999, the old Buffalo Auditorium, or the Odd, was not equipped to handle the unseasonably warm weather conditions outside. Well, and, and so for a franchise that started in 70, in 75, you were in the Stanley Cup Finals, which is when they had the infamous uh, fog game at the Memorial Auditorium, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What was I mean, that like? Well, I, I used that as, as a try to bump up for these kids. I said, in 73, we lost more games than anybody in hockey. Two years later, we were in the Stanley Cup Finals. But that, that fog game was unbelievable. It was like... It, I mean, we just couldn't. It was 90 degrees out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was just, they didn't have the ventilation systems and they don't have, you know, they didn't have the equipment to, to keep the fog right. down, to keep the arena cold. Right, right, right. I mean, we had that same problem. Uh, they never got the fog because they brought all kinds of um, ventilators and uh, exhaust systems. And we played Dallas in the final. In Dallas, they had they had more equipment oh, wow. running through that yeah. building, pulling all the... Uh, you know the the cold the, the cold air out and mm-hmm. trying to keep the cold air in and but uh, very similar. I mean, nobody's nobody's equipped to play hockey in ninety five degree weather. So, no, I remember watching uh, the fog game on TV too, and it seems to me that there were breaks every once in a while in the action. The players would skate, you know, around the ice just to get a little whirlwind going, right, and and dissipate the fog, fog. right? Yeah. Well, you had you had to see the white bed sheets, right? That the ice ice people had the ice crew. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that one. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, they just they just figured. Well, if you go around, the players are pushing the air, so we'll get these bed sheets. And they had they had two kids pulling bed sheets around the ice. They had like, <laughs> <laughs> they, had like they had like twenty people trying to get the fog out of the out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed, haven't they? Wow, wow. Without a doubt. So, Rip, I know you are a member of three different Halls of Fame, among them the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame, but also... Uh, yes, and I'm in the National Hockey League Hall of Fame. Yep, yep. Um, so, and I'm in the Sabres Hall of Fame, yeah. so I got three. Three of them. Full circle. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, what was it like to get those, those kind of calls that you're you're now in the you know the NHL Hall of Fame? The I mean, for you know a guy that grew up in the old First Ward, it had to be... I mean, the opportunity for rub elbows with in hockey mm-hmm. with guys like Fred Shiro, he was one of our coaches. I think out of the top 10 coaches and wins in the National Hockey League, I think I've worked with eight of them. Oh, wow. Um, two of them, two of them were passed away before I even got into hockey. So, like, told Blake and guys like that. So, 
But, I mean, I worked with Billy Ray. I obviously worked with Punch, Fred Shiro, um, a lot of great, great coaches. I mean, Lindy Ruffs was a great coach. He's got a lot of wins, Joel Quenville. So it's uh, it's very, it's very uh, rewarding to know that, you know, hey, I can go up to him and say, hi, how you doing? Yeah. And, and the, the most proud for me is if, like the last year, I backed off a little bit on traveling. But these coaches all look for me, which is nice. Yeah. Is Rip there? How's Rip doing? Is he, is he not healthy? He's not traveling? He goes, no, no. He's, <laughs> he got a little bit smarter after 50 years. <laughs> I'm going to have to check our extensive podcast records very carefully, but I'm fairly certain Rip is the first guest we've had who is a member of three different halls of fame. Rip is a guy who every Sabre over the last 50 years will tell you looked out for his players. That took many forms over the decades. One great example is the significant financial boost given to one Peter McNabb, later to become a Boston Bruin of some note, early in his career by Rip. I know, you know, our mutual friend Bill Walsh, uh, we talked about Punch Himlack, but he told me, uh, if you want to repeat it, that's fine. If you don't want to, I, I understand it. But uh, Bill told me a funny story that uh, Punch had told you uh, there was, a, I think it was the last game of the season, and there was a player who was eligible for a bonus uh, if he played in the game, and he didn't, Punch said, don't put him on the ice, and you, I think, worked a little bit behind the scenes to get him on the ice so oh, he could get his bonus, right? It was Peter McNabb. Oh, Boston wow. Okay. okay. All right. I'll, I'll yeah, exactly. Yeah. Peter McNabb. I liked him because I knew, had known his dad, Max McNabb. So yep. he had okay. a $40,000 sure. yeah. bonus. What he needed to do was to play, I think, 60 games. He had 59 games. Everybody knew about it before the game. So he dressed him. He didn't want to make it, the organization look bad. So there was like two minutes and 30 seconds left. And, uh, it's going to be the chance to last shift, and the poor kid is like, he's turning purple on the bench. So one of the guys came to the bench. I grabbed one guy's pants, and I pushed him over the boards. He he, he jumped on the ice. <laughs> and then he goes, that was a $40,000 shift you just made me do. <laughs> so he, he got his money. He got his money. They had to pay him. But you have to remember, this went on back in the days when player empowerment was but a dream and management held all the cards. So Peter was Peter was a really nice kid from a good family, and I had known his dad, like I said. And So uh, he comes in the summer. He's renegotiating his contract. He goes in the office to talk to Punch. So I see him in the hallway. He's going down the, coming down the locker room and talk to me. And I said, how'd you make out, Peter? He goes, I'm good. Well, I just signed a two-year contract. I'm all set. He said, uh, Punch is really taking care of me. So I said, oh, that's great. That's, that's really, I'm happy. So I go home. Obviously, no phones, no internet, anything. I go home, turn the news on at 6 o'clock. The Sabres have traded, traded. Peter McNabb to the Boston Bruins <laughs> for Andre Savard and a draft pick. <laughs> that is how it worked oh, back I, in the old days. The, the, the owner, the GM, the coach, I mean, they... It was pretty cutthroat, right? Yeah. Like any good craftsman, Rip has a talent for understanding how to apply his resources to unusual situations. 
Now, you were responsible. You actually have done a lot of things uh, in that. Obviously, you know, you don't get into the Hall of Fame just because you're a, a good guy. I mean, as the equipment manager, you had to do a lot of things on the fly. Like, I know when Pat LaFontaine broke his jaw, you designed a, a mask. And I was thinking about it, actually, yeah. this this spring because uh, when uh, Chara obviously got his jaw shattered, they they put a special yeah. uh, uh, face guard on. But you you were making that up on the fly, right, as, as, well, as that and happened? Well, me doctor, we, we, uh, we, uh, we designed that. We put that together. Our mask now they use plastic but our mask actually was the lightest metal titanium our ma- i still have that i still have that mask it, no kidding it oh, was, wow. it was made great. from titanium and and the one of the toughest things about the mask this is gonna i don't think it's gonna sound weird to you because you you follow sports keeping the thing straight so we had to use a football chin guard we didn't use the regular chin strap underneath the guy's neck we had to put a, a cup, so like guys were trying to elbow him in the face and the head, and you know, <laughs> it gets a little, it gets a little dirty. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Oh but God! That was that was one of our puzzles. I mean, we we could design. I mean, we designed it with no problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, the us and myself and the team doctor, we were, you know, we were in unison about this is what we're going to do. And you know, Patty was chomping on the bit to play, so he wanted to go. I mean, he was. I mean, he had this. Jaws wired, and you know he was like Man. dinner through a straw. So, oh god! But, uh, but he's a heart and soul player. He's he's working for the National Hockey League now. Well, and you also um, for Dominic Hasek, you came up with some, and I'd really like to understand what this was, but some skate sharpening protocols for goalies that are still in use today. So. What, what was it that you guys discovered, and and was was different, and and now is this now is a standard. Well, there were there were two things that when Dominic came. Number one, um, he came from Chicago, and at that time, my brother-in-law was assistant coach with the Chicago Blackhawks, EJ McGuire. Okay. So Mike Keenan said, "Listen, I don't want this Hasek guy here. I, I got Eddie Bell for, <laughs> and they had Jimmy Wade coming up, and he yeah. goes, guy can't speak English. Let's get rid of him.' Oh my gosh! So, so we got rid of him. When Dominic came, and Eddie Belfort had owned an equipment company in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So when Dominic's equipment came, I picked his pants up. I go, are there lead weights in these pants? They weigh like 40 pounds. Oh, wow. He goes, no, Eddie makes these for me. I go, well, Eddie's not making them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, I got a 17-year-old kid. At, at the, he's, he's in the um, leather business. I said, we'll make a pair of pants for you that you'll really like. And back to the skate sharpening. Dominic always played on the toes of the skates, he, like the players do now. He was he was one of the original butterfly guys. Okay. Him and Patrick Wah. Okay. So I decided the sharpening where the inside edge on the toe especially would be a little bit higher than the other part of the blade. So oh, he could dig in yeah. and he could butterfly. Oh, so wow. So on, on those pads, because I was worried couple times in practice, the guy fell on him. So what he did was, within the rules, I put, like, four knee pads that could Velcro in and out okay. on the knees of the goalie pads. So they were they were light and styrofoam that he could go down and butterfly and take the pressure off his knees. Oh, so man. Wow. right now, every goalie in hockey has those on his knee pads. Oh, wow. Everybody. So, I mean... We had a couple incidents when uh, <laughs> Patrick Wah was always jealous of Dominic. 
Here, oh, really? Team. Wow, interesting. Well, you saw that one, Colorado. Yo, yeah, yeah, that's true. Colorado yeah. Yeah, played good point. Detroit. Right, good point. Right, right. <laughs> so he came in one time just before Dominic uh, when he signed with Detroit. Yep. He wanted he wanted to try Dominic's equipment on in Colorado. Dominic went crazy. He says, "You ain't you ain't touching my equipment. You're a chick." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so he they went at it pretty good. Those guys, but uh, Dominic. He was a very honest and, and within the rules guy, and Patrick Wah was what he was. <laughs> anything, <laughs> That's a good way anything of putting it. Anything for an edge. That's a good way of putting it. Well, he had uh, the famous where he stomped off the ice mid-game, right, and said, "I'm done here in Montreal." That's how he ended up in uh, in Colorado, Colorado, right? Yeah, he had he had the exactly. he had the temper. Um, so I would imagine if if you took twenty pounds out of Dominic Hasek's pants, that probably helped his butterfly style quite a bit. Just just taking twenty pounds out, right? Oh yeah, he was pretty agile. The other the other problem Dominic had when he came from Chicago was he couldn't catch the puck. Oh, really? He he knocked it down. Okay. And he's he's famous for grabbing a puck with his blocker, grabbing it with his hand. I said, Dom, don't do that because somebody's going to step on your hand. Yeah, yeah. But he kept doing it his whole career. He didn't pay attention to me. But I said to him, okay, Dominic, we're going to work on your catching glove. You're going to to be able to catch the puck. You're going to control the play. So because I played baseball my whole life, Mm -hmm. I I went to the equipment manager with the the, uh, New York Mets and asked him, like, I see these guys have the bucket, bucket, first baseman Mets. What do you do to make sure the ball stays in the web? And he, he said, you put washers in the back of the webbing, at the bottom, not at the top. Oh, wow. So I made, like, a lacrosse pocket in Dominic's catching gloves. So I, I put a glove together for Dominic. I go, yeah. you're going to use this in practice today. And he goes, I can't use the word, but I, I can catch the puck. I can catch the puck. <laughs> so oh, that's interesting. He got, wow. to be, he got to be so good at catching the puck. That the league came in six times to, to to measure his glove, and it was illegal. Oh wow! It was legal. It was okay. legal every time. So yeah. putting um, putting the washers in the bottom of the webbing just added some weight to kind of trap the puck in there, I guess. Right when he caught it, exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! When it hit every, every part of his pocket, it hit. It would get stuck in the webbing. Oh, that's great! Wow. Um. So they uh, obviously they when you win, they think you cheat. So. <laughs> We didn't cheat. Well, so. just ask a Patriots fan. <laughs> just ask a Patriots fan, right? <laughs> we know that very well. Exactly. <laughs> Knowing that Rip worked with a player whose name epitomized hockey and the rough style of play, I had to ask him about being around this individual. In discussing that player, Rip surfaced another player whose name was the exact opposite of his style. That discussion brought back a bunch of great names and memories. You mentioned to me one of the best-named players, coaches of all time, particularly for hockey, uh, Lindy Ruff. To me, there's no better name for a guy who, he, he epitomized that name to me as a player and a coach, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He was, he was awesome. Yeah. I remember one, I remember one time our team photographer, not team photographer, but the paper photographer's name is Harry Skull. On the bench, he says, have those two guys sit together on the bench during a game. I go, I said, but why? Just, I'll show you. So they were on the bench, and he got behind the bench, and, and his defense partner was Larry Playfair. Oh, wow. So okay, yeah. On the left-hand side, it said Playfair and Ruff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> and, and Larry, Larry.
toughest guys in the league. He was. He was very tough. <laughs> I used to say he was the but worst the, name player in the league, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that really that, that really worked out perfect. Play fair and rough. That's still to this day family's best friend. I no, mean, that's funny. That team, oh. that team we had with play fair, rough, Felino, Mike Ramsey. That was the best bunch of guys I've ever been associated with. Thanks to his long tenure with the Sabres, Rip got to be a part of a historic hockey event in Buffalo, one that brought the game back to its roots, even if some of those roots predated that day's players. So, Rip, I know that you, well, in Buffalo, uh, it's now it's a great tradition, uh, but the first Winter Classic was played in Buffalo. So as the equipment manager, did you have any special challenges? Uh, no, I think it's pretty well organized, uh, the league. Believe it or not, did a nice job. They sent a lot of staff in, and we had everything we wanted. I mean, we were prepared for the, the weather. Um, both teams were good. Pittsburgh was, you know, they, they have good equipment managers also. So yep. We were both given the opportunity to, to get what we needed. We had heaters on the bench, and the weather wasn't that cooperative, but it was very, very emotional with the planes flying over. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And uh, sure. it, was, uh, it was a great show. It was a good game. A lot of fun. It was a good game, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. And I just think the league wanted to have a bigger venue than Buffalo being the best and the biggest. So that's why they've done all these stadiums in Michigan and all yeah, over the place. Yeah. But I mean, we. I mean, our game was there's classic game. I mean, you got Sidney Crosby and taking a penalty shot on Ryan Miller. <laughs> I mean, did yeah. that happen in the Olympics about six years later? <laughs> Well, and as I recall, didn't it snow that day? So it really, it really brought back like the whole pond hockey environment, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, it was. It was like a grapple. It was a little snow, a little rain, a little ice. The ironic part about the whole thing: one player, and I asked both teams, one player played an outdoor game, and that was Max Finneganoff, only player from the Sabers, only player to ever play an outdoor game. Wow! Wow! Isn't that amazing? There's like 40 hockey players, one guy. Yeah, you would have thought. Yeah, no, that's really. <laughs> wow. I mean, he played. He played an outdoor game in Russia. That's what he told me. So yeah, it was good. It was exciting. I wasn't going to let Rip off the phone without talking about some other Buffalo sports memories and opinions. Let's uh, let's uh, switch up a little of the Buffalo uh, sports here. Let's talk about the the Bills for a second. I did this to Bill Walls too, so I'm curious what your answers are. Um, okay. Okay. Buffalo Bills. You got one quarterback to win one game, and I'm going to give you four choices. All right. We'll say Jack Kemp, Jim Kelly, Daryl Lamonica, or Joe Ferguson. Well, everybody knows it's got to be Jim Kelly. Okay. All right. That's what Billy said, too. <laughs> but but let's yeah. not forget, those other three were all pretty good. I mean, Joe Ferguson is actually, to me, probably the least remembered of the four, and, and that guy was t- pretty tough. Wow. Well, a little guy, big heart, great winner. Yeah, he Knew was. how to win. That, that's the key to all those four guys. They knew how to win. They didn't have to rely on any excuse, and they knew how to win. And that's the key, winning. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. No, it begins with attitude. I think you're right. All right. All right let's, yep. let's, let's go to the running back. Uh, and we got we to gotta put OJ in there, but I'm going to give you three other names, too. I got Thurman Thomas, Joe Cribbs, or Cookie Gilchrist. I was waiting for you to say him. <laughs> Cookie. <laughs> Cookie. Wow, <laughs> uh, what? The second, the, the, the local guy, the second you didn't mention him is Thurman Thomas. was a great running back. Thurman should have been in the list. 
No, I did mention Thurman. I did mention him because I, I agree with you. I, I, yeah, in fact, that's how that is how Bill that's how Bill Walsh and I got introduced. Believe it or not, I'll just tell you this story real quick. We were on a message board um, uh, about horse racing, uh, an old Yahoo message board. It was called Diamond at the time, and someone threw a non-horse racing question out there: um, "What's the best individual uh, single game performance you ever saw?" And I happened to be at the Bills Giants Super Bowl and. Thurman was all over the field that day. I mean, he was yeah. he did everything that day. In fact, there was a play on that last drive where the only remaining giant on that side of the field tackled him on a screen pass because if he had gotten by that guy, he was going to score t- uh, like a 70-yard touchdown. So I, I threw out Thurman Thomas, and all of a sudden I get this private message from this guy, Bill Walsh, who I knew was on the board. He's like, Bill, you're breaking my heart here. <laughs> I said, <Yeah>. what, what, <laughs> So, uh, but I'll, so I'll, related to that, I'll ask you the same question I asked Bill. Would they have won four Super Bowls if they had won that first game? Um, once you get that feather in your cap, it'll yeah. grow. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've seen it. And you can't talk about Buffalo without asking where to get the best beef on Weck sandwich. If you've never had one, you have to try it. So, uh, Buffalo, best uh, – Best beef on Weck sandwich. Let's 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 do that one too. Where, where do people go? I mean, everyone talks about buffalo wings, but beef on Weck. If you haven't had one, right, you get you got to have one. It's a good sandwich. Where where do you go to get the best one in Buffalo, Rip? Um, right now, I think there's a place in West Center called Schwabels. Okay. S C H A B L E. Okay. Schwabels. Okay. That's uh, that's very good. Pretty much, it's standard now. Everybody's got them, so. It's nothing special. Okay. All right. Everything's getting homogenized a little bit. My fear in wrapping up this podcast is that I haven't done enough in my discussion with Rip to bring out what a genuinely kind and caring, but really what a genuinely genuine person he is. I'll let some of his players and associates, past and present, fill in any gaps I may have missed. Gilbert Perrault, first draft pick of the newly born Buffalo Sabres franchise in 1970 and fellow Hockey Hall of Fame inductee, said of Rip, He was part of the team, a great part of the team. You've got to have fun in the dressing room, and Rip was a great part of that. He's a great friend, and we had a great time in the early years. Every time I come to Buffalo, I try to see him. He hasn't changed at all. Don Luce, who joined the Sabres in 1971 and worked alongside Rip for a mere 31 years, said, You come in as a player and he takes care of you. He makes sure your equipment is great and does a great job at that, but realistically, he talks to the players, makes them feel at home. When you're a young kid coming in, or even a veteran, he makes you feel at home and makes you feel a part of it right away. Chris Taylor, who played for the Sabres in the early days, remembered his arrival in Buffalo well. As soon as I got there, he knew where I was from, my hometown of Stratford, Ontario, and that the old Sabres trainer Angie Nigro was from my hometown. He shared that with me. I knew Angie Nigro very well. He was a baseball coach of mine when I grew up, so just for Rip to look up where I was from... That understanding showed Rip cares about each individual who comes up, and he takes notice of who you are and where you're coming from. When fellow Buffalonian Tim Nowak worked his final game as a linesman last season in 2019, Rip was one of the first to shake his hand in the official's locker room. But perhaps the most telling story about Rip and his character is one I am sure he would have been hard-pressed to tell. In this day and age of multiple angle, slow motion replays, we've gotten used to seeing horrific sports injuries replayed ad nauseum for, let's face it, our sick entertainment. 
Think Kevin Ware of the University of Louisville snapping his leg, the tibia openly protruding in an Elite Eight game at the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament in 2013. Or Joe Theismann, sacked by Lawrence Taylor on Monday Night Football, fracturing both the tibia and fibula live and in vivid color. But more than 30 years on, there is still no more horrific injury suffered in any sport than the night Buffalo Sabre goalie Clint Malarchuk had his jugular vein inadvertently sliced open during a scramble in the goalie crease in a game versus the St. Louis Blues at the old Buffalo Memorial Auditorium. Referee Terry Gregson, right on top of the action, was convinced Malarchuk was going to die right there. Fans in the stands were passing out. Two fans reportedly suffered heart attacks. Players were vomiting on the ice as a three-foot pool of blood quickly formed around the goalie crease. One of the first people by Malarchik's side, in addition to the Sabres trainer Jim Pizzitelli, who had studied sports medicine after being injured as a combat engineer in Vietnam, was, of course, Rip Simonic. Rip was at Malarchik's side as he was let off the ice. In the locker room, he held Malarchik's hand, squeezing it and encouraging him to hang on. Malarchik asked Rip to bring in the team chaplain and to call the goalie's mother, who he knew was watching on TV. As it happened, the chaplain was not at the game that night. Rip handled the difficult task of making the call to Malarchik's mother as they waited for the ambulance to transport him to the hospital. I talked to your mom, Rip told Malarchik. She said she loves you. Malarchik survived that horrific event. The injury and near-death experience, however, continued to haunt him unsurprisingly, and he struggled with mental illness and severe depression for years. Fighter that he is and was, he survived that also and now does mental health advocacy work with his wife. It's an understandable reaction that when tragedy strikes, the temptation of many is to turn away or run away. They say the difference between the average citizen and a firefighter or a police officer is that those individuals run toward danger while we, the average citizen, understandably run away. If you've gotten nothing else out of this podcast, I hope you have gotten a sense for how everything in Rip's character was what caused him to run toward what Clint Malarchuk needed. I've said it before in this podcast and I'll say it again. Far too often in today's society, we find ourselves fueled by a celebrity-obsessed mass media, fading people who deserve no more than a cursory nod if we pass them on the street. And then there are people like Rip. In my mind, they are the true celebrities, or at the very least, the people who are far more deserving of our attention than the pick-a-name celebrity of the week who appeared at some glitzy fundraiser for some trendy cause. There's talking about doing good, and then there is actually doing good. I felt privileged to be able to talk to Rip. He's been around the world and been a part of a lot of great events, but a more down-to-earth guy you will never meet. Thank you, Rip. And thanks for joining us on the Can Do Podcast. We look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meantime, of course, may the horse be with you. <laughs>